Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the mid-1800s, if you happened to be a Quaker born in England, there were lots of things you couldn't do. Hunt, attend theater performances, play sports. But there was one pastime, maybe kind of unexpectedly, that was totally okay. Science. Which is probably why a man named Joseph Lister, you know his name from the product named after him, Listerine, it's probably why he ended up throwing himself into scientific study and changing medicine forever. The story of how he did that is both brilliant and gruesome. Lindsay Fitzharris has written about it in The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's quest to transform the grisly world of Victorian medicine. Lindsay, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what did surgeons do in, let's say, like the 1820s, which is when Joseph Lister was born? Um, what was their role? In the early 19th century, they were more akin to barbers, and they were actually, there was barber surgeons in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, and they kind of did everything. They didn't just uh, deal with your hair. Um, they, <laughs> so, <laughs> the barbers... Wait, 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 wait. They were cutting your hair and amputating they, your leg they also? They were, yeah. They Whoa. could be. Um, in the late 18th century, the barber surgeons, they did a lot of bloodletting. That was their, their number one um, service mm. that they offered. And in fact, the red and white barber's pole comes from the fact that the barbers were bloodletters. What they would do is they would take the bloody rags from their patients and they would tie them on a pole outside of their shop and that these Yikes. these rags would wrap around the pole and create that red and white stripes that we're familiar with today. Hmm. It's kind of like how your dentist sends you, you know, a reminder that you need a cleaning and it's it's like usually like a toothbrush that's smiling. It's that it was kind of like that like you'd walk past the barber shop and you think, "Well, I need to go in for my my monthly bloodletting." So they did all kinds of things. They did bloodletting, they lanced boils. They dealt with the external part of the body. Hmm. But when we get to the 19th century, when we get to uh, Joseph Lister's time, bloodletting has gone to the wayside a bit. Some of the surgeons were incredibly interesting characters. Um, one of my favorites is this man named Robert Liston. He was known as the fastest knife in the West End, and he could take your leg off in under 30 seconds. <laughs> sounds like a guy. It sounds like a guy in Arizona in like the Tombstone days. who was like the fastest <laughs> yeah. draw in the West, like the fastest yeah, knife absolutely. in the West End. That is that is uh, what he was. He could take your leg off in under 30 seconds. He was he was 6'2". He was very large for the 19th century. And um, he could hold you down with his left hand. And in fact, wow. he would move so fast that he, when he was switching instruments, he would hold the bloody instruments in his mouth, which really underlies how far we've come right. uh, with right. hygiene and our understanding of disease. But if you were living in a pre-anesthetic era, you wanted someone like Liston. You wanted the fastest knife in the West End because you mm. certainly wouldn't want to be you know struggling against the knife as your leg is taken off oh for a long God. period of time. And, and we're talking met also a time where there was basically no anesthesia. Yes. Um, so the discovery of ether happens in 1846. Um, and I think that if anybody thinks about the history of surgery, which might be unlikely, um, but if anybody has <laughs> given it any thought, they think of the moment that anesthesia is discovered. It's the age of agony is over. We have conquered pain. You don't have the, the patient struggling against the knife anymore. But what happens is people don't understand that germs exist. So actually, mm. surgery becomes much more dangerous immediately following the discovery of ether because the surgeon is more willing to pick up the knife. He's more willing to go deeper into the body. And as a result, these operations become slow-moving executions and post-operative infection rises. So let's, I want to go back to Robert Liston for a second. And Liston and Lister have similar names, but they are not, <laughs> yes, they're not yeah. related. But, but Robert Liston, this, as you say, like overpowering surgeon, incredibly fast at 
cutting people up. You tell this story of one time when he did a surgery, and not only did the patient die, but there were more deaths, even though there he wasn't, he was only operating. I don't know how you can kill other people who are not being operated on, but do you want to it's tell that story? It's an impressive, yeah, it's an impressive feat. It's one of my favorite stories about Liston. Um, he's sort of a bigger than life character, and, and he adds a lot of color into the butchering art because of that. But he was operating on a patient. He was removing the patient's leg, and he was moving so fast that he accidentally took off his assistant's finger. And as he was oh switching God. instruments, he slashed the coat of a spectator, and that guy died of fright and oh um gosh. the assistant he died, died of fright he, that's what it said in the historical record he died of fright which wow. is impressive in and of itself the assistant died of gangrene later it, it, his hand became infected mm-hmm. and the patient died as well and so it's kind of jokingly referred to as the only operation with a 300% mortality rate <laughs> Let's talk about how um, medicine was changing at the moment that Joseph Lister got involved. I mean, obviously, we've got these huge problems with, as you say, you know, surgery is kind of up to the whims of however good your surgeon is, which might not be good at all. You've got dirt problems, I mean, in hospitals. And into this, Joseph Lister comes into these very dirty hospitals. And, you know, obviously, he wants to be a doctor. What is happening at the moment that he gets into medicine? Well, he enters medical school in 1848, and um, at this point, the hospitals are growing. There, there's these big urban hospitals that are springing up because the population is also exploding at this time. But keep in mind that the hospitals were only places that you went if you were poor. Okay. Um, you didn't go if you were wealthy or middle class. You were treated in, in your own home. And it was also really what historians call the deserving poor because you still had to bring some level of income to cover um, various fees associated with it. For instance, huh. some hospitals charged you for your inevitable burial because it was so expected you were going to die in wow. these places. Um, other hospitals charged you, um, if you if they deemed you extra foul. So these places were grimy and dingy. Uh, in 1825, a patient had wriggling maggots and mushrooms growing in the damp-soiled sheets of his hospital bed. Um, and what's crazy is he didn't even feel the need to complain about this. Um, it was so expected that these were the conditions. So this is what Lister steps into in the 1840s when right. he enters medical school. You write about a hospital where there was a chief bug catcher. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, the best, I always say the best that could be said about these 19th, these early Victorian hospitals is that they were a slight improvement over their 18th century predecessors, <laughs> which isn't saying much because yeah. you're right, the bug catcher was paid more than the surgeon and the doctor wow. in the 18th century. And there's a guy named Andrew Cook who is the bug destroyer, and he claims to have rid 20,000 beds of lice. So when you consider there was that many lice in the yeah. hospitals, you can understand why he was paid pretty well. Right, right. So, yeah, so into this comes Joseph Lister. Yeah, so Lister inherits this grimy world, and it had reached such a problem that it was seriously suggested that the only way to control infection was to just burn the hospitals down from time to time and just start anew. And I kind of love that imagery, this idea of, you know, you think of the hospitals today, just like imagine burning these buildings down. This is the world that he steps into. Um, and I always like to remind people, too, that going into medicine, making that decision was um, a dangerous one as well, because this is a time before mass vaccinations. It's a time before antibiotics. People are dying of diseases like smallpox. You're exposing yourself to huge dangers as you walk onto these wards. And right. as a result, a lot of um, medical students and, and doctors and surgeons died being exposed to these patients. You know, I mentioned before about Joseph Lister was maybe a little unusual because he was a Quaker. 
had this family that was, you know, observant in many ways. But one of those things, as I said, is like that science was okay. And in fact, a lot of Quakers were really into science because other some other things were prohibited. And Joseph Lister's father had a really good, for the time, microscope. That's right. Talk about yeah. how microscopes impacted Lister and what he would go on to do. The microscope is very important to the story I tell in the butchering art. Um, the microscope had been around for quite some time by the 19th century, but it wasn't accepted as a medical tool. A lot of people in medicine thought that it would make for lazy clinicians, that doctors would stop using their eyes or trusting their eyes to diagnose patients. The other thing was that if you think about it, you're looking down a microscope and whatever you're seeing might not actually impact how you treat a patient ultimately. So it was seen as sort of a frivolous instrument. You know, why would you use the microscope in medicine? Mm. But as you say, Lister was a Quaker, and his father had this huge interest in the microscope. He actually makes a lot of improvements on lenses. And um, Lister grows up with the microscope. So when he goes off to medical school in the 1840s, he brings with him this unusual instrument. Mm. And it's really because of his exposure to the microscope and his father's interest in science that he's so receptive to Louis Pasteur's germ theory down the road. Hmm. And I like to say that this is a love story between science and medicine because it's one of the first instances where a scientific principle, which is germ theory, is applied to medical practice through the development of antisepsis. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Lindsay Fitzharris, author of the new book, The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grisly World of Victorian Medicine. And before Lister um, knew about the work of Louis Pasteur, I assume people just would go from one hospital bed to the next hospital bed and essentially give the second patient the thing that the first patient had because they had no idea that they were transporting germs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I okay. mean, pa- surgeons rarely wash their hands or their instruments. And mm. it's it's mind-boggling to us because we operate in a world where we know germs exist. But if you think about it logically, why would you keep washing your hands when they were just going to get dirty if you right. didn't understand that germs right, existed? Right, right. So, I mean, the, it, was, it was just such an unhygienic time. Now, there were other people who were working on this problem. Florence Nightingale uh, was working in parallel with Lister on a hygiene movement. She actually didn't at first believe that in germs. She thought that that was a step too far. Uh, there was also an Austrian physician named Semmelweis. He was putting together this idea that if you wash your hands before treating patients, that um, post-operative infections or infection rates in general go down. Mm. He was eventually put into a, a lunatic asylum. His colleagues called him the hand washer. Yeah, and really? he kind of died this very yeah. sad um, end to his life. But the difference between Semmelweis and Nightingale and some of these other people who are working on, on this problem and who are working in general on p- improving hygiene in the Victorian period is that they didn't have the agent by which disease was spread. And that's really where Lister comes in. He takes Louis Pasteur's germ theory and he puts the connection together that this is what's causing disease. Hmm. And that's really Lister's contribution. So amidst all this, this sort of professional development and advancement of Joseph Lister, his sister gets breast cancer. And at the time, it sounds like breast cancer was something that was pretty close to fatal because... It was hard to take a breast off or to do a major operation because you'd have a huge wound and you would just die from that wound. Yeah, it would get infected, right? 
Yeah, I mean, people, the mastectomies have been going on for quite a long time, even uh, 17th and 18th centuries, again, without any anesthetic, which is mind-boggling. Uh, my own mother had a double mastectomy five years ago. And when you think about how routine it almost is yeah. in medicine today, um, it's it just shows how far we've come. Doctors were able to diagnose breast cancer. But again, by the time you could see it, you have to imagine that it was likely that it had spread elsewhere in the body, especially if the breast was necrotizing. It probably was very far along. Those women who survive a mastectomy and end up living a long life, you do have to wonder, was it cancerous or was it just a growth? Mm. But you get plenty of stories of mastectomies. Lister's sister gets breast cancer, and um, she actually approaches several other surgeons before she approaches her brother, and huh. they refuse to do the operation because, just what you said, the open wound would uh, leave her at risk of postoperative infection, which could kill her a lot quicker than the cancer. Right. So the idea was, you know, live out your life. Yeah. But she goes up to Scotland to visit her brother, and he's just at this point developing his antisepsis techniques, and he decides to do this operation on his own dining room table. And um, it takes it out of him emotionally, as one can imagine. But she does survive. She doesn't develop any postoperative infection. He's very careful to clean everything beforehand, as well as clean out the wound afterwards. And it's sort of a miracle. And I like to say that Lister saved everyone from his sister to Queen Victoria and everybody right. in between. He did. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and that's it. That's another story. Uh, the the Queen, um, she got an abscess under her armpit, and Lister was called to her bedside. And uh, he was able to remove this abscess and drain it, and she didn't get any kind of infection. And he liked to quip afterwards that he was the only man who could plunge a knife into the queen and live uh, to, to tell them right, about the experience. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it's really remarkable how many different kinds of people he operated on, how many lives he's changed, how many lives he saved, how many lives he continues to save um, because we now operate with the knowledge of germs. So obviously, he, to some degree, is a celebrated figure, or he never would have been asked to help treat the queen. But can you talk about the resistance to his ideas about, like, this is how things should be. We should use antiseptic. Things should be clean. This is the way surgery should be going forward. Yeah, I mean, there was a huge amount of resistance, unsurprisingly. Whenever a paradigm is broken and, and a new paradigm rises, there's always resistance within the medical and scientific community. And actually, I hope people uh, within these communities read this book and realize that, you know, what we know today isn't going to be what we know tomorrow. And mm -hmm. what are people going to say in 50 or 100 years about us? Mm -hmm. You have to keep that always in mind. Right. But he, there was a huge amount of resistance, and it's, it's hard for us to understand in the 21st century. But imagine this young man comes around, and he says, says that there are these invisible creatures and they are killing your patient. Um, right. And it was right. a little bit, it was it was strange to accept. The other part of that was that essentially what he was telling the older generation surgeons was that they had been inadvertently killing their patients all along. And these were men who had, they were in the, the business of saving lives. And I think that was a hard pill to swallow for them. So the mm. way that Lister ultimately does triumph is he, he has to get to the younger generation. And he's a teacher up in Scotland. And every year year, you know, hundreds of students are graduating from his classes and they're going out into the world and they call them the Listerians and they go out and they spread uh -huh. the gospel of antisepsis. And that is ultimately how the change happens. It's a slow burn. Right, right. It's winning over a new generation, it sounds like. It's not so much convincing older people as it is training a new generation of doctors. Yeah, exactly. And, and just how we see, you know, progress being made as well to some extent today. Mm -hmm. So this is what happens. He does live into his own fame, um, as you mentioned at the top 
that Listerine was named after him. He mm-hmm. came to Philadelphia 135 years ago to convince Americans of the existence of germs. And this man was in the audience and inspired to create this product. It wasn't originally a mouthwash. It was actually used to treat gonorrhea, of all things. Mm. And there was another man in the audience in Philadelphia. His name was Robert Wood Johnson. And he, too, was inspired. He mm. got together with his brothers and created the company Johnson & Johnson. And they oh, produced wow. uh, surgical antiseptic dressing. So there was a lot of little things that came out of his trip to America. But eventually there was this sort of carbolic acid mania and people were creating all kinds of products around it. But it's interesting that he was so famous in his own at the end of his life. He's I like to say that he's a, one of those figures who burns bright in his own time, but then is largely forgotten shortly after. Mm. Because although medical historians and historians in general certainly know of Lister's existence, I feel like the public aren't as familiar with his name. Lindsay Fitzharris is author of the book The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grisly World of Victorian Medicine. Lindsay, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to know more about Robert Liston, the surgeon who accidentally cut off his assistant's finger, we've got a link to an article at our website that examines his bloody and colorful life. That's at innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. And from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, analyzing the genetic weaknesses of more than 25,000 tumors to craft precision treatments for cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash BeatCancer. On January 20th, 2017, thousands of people converged on Washington, D.C. because a new president was being inaugurated. But ask yourself what sounds like kind of a stupid question. How did they know an inauguration was going on that day? Well, presidential inaugurations have been taking place on January 20th for almost a century now. And they happen like clockwork every four years. You could have found that info in newspapers, online, in magazines, in books. You could have planned for years to show up on January 20th and witness someone being inaugurated as president. The next day, January 21st, thousands of people again converged on Washington, D.C., but this time it was for the Women's March, which was most prominent in D.C., but of course it also happened all over the world. So same question. How did people know about it? The answer is very different. Just a couple of months before, in the wake of President Trump's election, several people started Facebook pages, and they encouraged friends to march on Washington in protest. The fact that millions of people around the world heeded that call says a lot about the power of social media to organize. But whether protests have any real teeth, like any staying power beyond that initial burst of excitement, is an open question. Zainab Tufekshi is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina, and she's the author of Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Network Protest. Zainab, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So as I was talking about these big, uh, pro- this big protest in January, there have always been these major marches with big political impact. But I wonder, can you talk about the difference between something like the 1963 March on Washington, and then the 2017 Women's March, which was also in Washington. Like, what were the differences? And in that basically 50 years, what has changed in terms of organizing people? Well, 
obviously the similarities are clear, right? There are huge marches. Mm -hmm. There's great energy, lots of people. Uh, the big difference is what it took to organize the march. Uh, the 1963 March on Washington came after more than a decade of civil rights activism, organizing, movement building. And it took them six months to organize the march itself, too. Mm. And it wasn't just an intensive effort during those six months. There was this enormous infrastructure that the civil rights movement had built over the years to get to the place where they could even think about holding that kind of march and pull it off. And I know like it's in our history books right now, so it might seem like oh, it was just a march, but it was a really difficult one. Mm. They couldn't even let people stay overnight in D.C. because back then you could not guarantee the safety of hundreds of thousands of people mm. coming together, mixed race, marching against racism, and have them stay overnight in D.C. and expect all of them to be safe. So they had to bring all those people in, and they had to get them out mm. and have everything work. And, you know, at the last minute, their sound system was sabotaged. There were all sorts of issues they had to deal with. Now, contrast that with the Women's March, which also is a big march, pretty much the same area. The difference is, instead of being almost like the culmination of movement building, the Women's March is perhaps the first step mm -hmm. of movement building, mm -hmm. right? Because it started with a Facebook post, and then a couple of people get together. And then, obviously, the organizers put in a lot of work. I don't mean to say that these marches aren't you know, a lot right, of work. Right. But compared to the past, they're not 10 years of work to get mm -hmm. to that point. They're a couple of months of work to get to that point. And back then, if the media wasn't friendly to you or if you didn't have a really intensive organization getting the word out, you couldn't get the word out easily. Mm -hmm. Whereas right now, you know, a hashtag here and a Facebook group there and boom, you can go viral and have that out. So this... It appears as if I'm telling this big story of empowerment through digital media, and I kind of am, right? It is really empowering mm -hmm. to be able to hold that big march so quickly. But it comes with disempowering aspects. And one of the biggest ones is, I mean, think of it like you've got a car and you're going from zero to 100 miles in three seconds. But you're actually building the car at the same time. You don't really have the steering wheel, the decision-making committee, the leadership, all those things. You barely know place. each other. I mean, this is like a get-to-know-you march. <laughs> right. It's right. exactly right. You got to know people. That's fine. You could get to know them over time. And, you know, that's a plausible path. But you have to make very important, fraught decisions immediately. Mm -hmm. Right? So you're already at 100 miles an hour. Right? You're already... You know, you're protesting an administration, you're very large, and things are moving, happening every day. And you don't have necessarily the kind of sort of network building and organizational building and infrastructure building that you could have had to make if you didn't have, you know, Twitter and Facebook groups. Right, right. I think it's actually really interesting that, as you say, like the 1963 March on Washington was not really necessarily about um, galvanizing people. It was like saying, we've been doing this work on civil rights for years in small ways all over the country, you know, in these ways that maybe passed unnoticed. But here, we're going to make you, the public, the government, notice it. You know, like this, this, is, this is the culmination. And that is so different from the Women's March. And with the Women's March, I remember people being interviewed on television walking away saying, 
this inspired me. I'm going to go do something now. Like, I, I want to run for office or I want to contribute or I want to volunteer. Like, this is a good first step. Right. So today's marches, uh, large marches like this, are absolutely, they operate exactly what you said. They operate as very good first steps. They mm -hmm. energize people. They give them direction. You get to know lots of people who think like you. The open question is, will those people do everything else? Because that takes time. Mm -hmm. And the second open question is, will they be able to do it in time? Because, um, I mean, let's think about the U.S. context, right? Uh, the obvious next point for the United States uh, political situation is the 2000. Uh, 18 midterm elections, right, right? Exactly. It may well be that people are a little blinded by the sizes of the marches. But what I try to tell people is that I study social movements and internet, right? And I think the internet has kind of put springs to your feet mm -hmm. if you're talking about the march. You can jump really high with those springs when it comes to marching. But they're jumping on a trampoline. And they're going to get off that trampoline and they're going to have to, you know, run a marathon. And in the past, if I saw them jump that high, I might have said, yeah, they'll probably run that marathon. Whereas right now, I don't know. It's an open question. You've pointed out that when the Tea Party uh, got inspired about 10 years ago and held protests, which also happened to be the same time that the Occupy movement was out there holding protests, um, that the Tea Party ended up with over a billion dollars to organize primary challenges, whereas we're not looking at anywhere near that kind of money so far to left-leaning groups. How do you think that happened? So just to compare how these things fared, what happened with the Tea Party movement is twofold. One, it was a very electorally focused movement. They didn't just protest. They got together very quickly in various locales. And they're like, how do we ask our congressperson? How do mm -hmm. we primary the Republican? In fact, researchers found they were almost like political scientists. They knew ins and outs of political legislature and, and all that stuff very well. Why? There's a lot of things they were missing. Well, because they wanted to change and block various laws hmm. and they want to re really laser focus on. They were misinformed on a bunch of stuff, but how to make sure that bill gets stuck in committee? They need that up and down. Hmm. So the other thing that happened to them is a uh, very s sort of sympathetic billionaire stepped up hmm. and gave him lots of money and guidance. So if you want to sort of look at the 2016 version of this in just just 2016, just one year, uh, most recent year, just the Coe brothers who uh, helped fund the Tea Party movement, they spent about a billion dollars, that's billion with a B as in boy, on down-ballot races, up and down the ballot in the United States. And down-ballot is really important because that's infrastructure, that's local infrastructure, that's what's going to get you the presidential race later too. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Zainab Tufekshi, author of Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Network Protest. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about uh, the Arab Spring, which was this huge protest movement that was aided by technology, swept through parts of the Middle East several years ago. And in particular, this thought that people had that was like, 
you know, wow, this is protest, this is change. Uh, but governments ultimately were able to thwart the technology, often thwart the protests. And in the end, protesters did not really win the day. So when I look at the public sphere now, you know, six years after the Arab Spring, Arab uprisings, what I see around the world is that governments have figured out that they can't really block information. It's gotten really hard. Mm. And even if you're China, you know, there's hundreds of millions of netizens there. And they would be able to overpower the censorship apparatus if they were really motivated to do so. I mean, mm. it's kind of hard. You can put a lot of resources in censorship, but even in the extreme case, it takes an enormous amount of resources and it's only that much effective if the people are motivated. Right. But what you can do, if you can't block the information from getting to people, you can keep the information from being empowering. You can break the link between information and action by challenging the credibility of the information. Uh-huh. And we've seen this with Russia. We've seen this with Russia. Russia is one of the innovators in this space. Mm-hmm. China does this professionally. They have a professional so-called 50-cent army. Uh, allegedly, they were paid 50 cents for posts, but that probably isn't true, but the name stuck. So what they do is they uh, create distractions around sensitive anniversaries or political moments. So if there's something going on that's important and that people are trying to pay attention and dissidents are like, oh, look over here, this sort of hundreds of thousands of people who are kind of coordinated secretly, they come and say, oh, look, here's something else. And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what that something else is. It could be some movie stars having an affair. It doesn't matter. Anything that captures people's attention means that there's going to be less attention, which is oxygen to movements going to this other thing. Yeah, so there's all these things. How how did you first become interested in technologically fueled protests? <laughs> well, um, that's a great question. I mean, the obvious answer is I'm from Turkey. And I grew up under the 1980 military coup. I was a child then. And you know how they say Eskimos have lots of words for snow? Yes. I don't know if it's true or not. Well, in Turkey, we have lots of words for coups. We have so <laughs> many kinds that we distinguish mm-hmm. them uh, by nature. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you have snow, you have flurries, you have, you know, this, that, sleet. We have so many coups, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that we have. We distinguish them. And 1981 was a particularly harsh one. It was a military dictatorship, and it was very heavy censorship. And you couldn't get any news. There was one TV channel, right? So this is just, you know, you had Little Ass on the Prairie all the time and things like that, which made no really? sense Did you stumble. really watch Little House yes. on the Prairie? And not only did I watch it, like we all knew Laura Ingalls and the, all the people. <laughs> I watched that when I was a kid too. But I know. And we couldn't make heads or sense out too. of it because, you know, in Istanbul, uh, in Turkey, like there is no frontier because... <laughs> There's no middle of nowhere. Right? You dig right. and you just form more empires underneath where you are. And you right. dig more, you run into right. a Neolithic village. Like the idea that there'd be places that were relatively sparsely unoccupied just didn't make any sense, even right. if you sort of uh, ignore the fact that the indigenous people were also there in the right, United right, States. Right. But compared to the Middle East, even that's a recent development. And I, I, I got a job as a computer programmer really early on, like first year of college, I was already working. 
in fact, first semester of college, I started working uh, as a programmer. And one of the things that happened early on is um, I worked at IBM, and IBM had an intranet. And that's a network that's internal to the company. Mm. And a lot of companies have them. The thing is, I got a sense of that intranet before I even experienced the internet because the internet hadn't yet come to Turkey. Mm. It took some time. And all of a sudden, you know, you could just sort of go home and there's a single channel and, <laughs> you know, irrelevant stuff and you can't make sense of what's going on. And then I could go to work and have unfettered communication with IBM employees around the world. And, as soon, and then the Internet came to Turkey and I was like, sign me up. Give me that modem. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the rest is the book. Yeah. Zainab Tufekci is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina. She's also the author of Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Network Protest. Zainab, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. We spoke with Tufekci last June. The elections earlier this month, which saw Democratic governors elected in Virginia and New Jersey and Democrats picking up a whole lot of seats in Virginia state legislature, that may indicate that the protests earlier this year could actually be influencing politics. But we're going to get a lot more data in 2018. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. The summer of 1816 was a strange one, at least for a few folks gathered in a lakeside house. There was a lot of sexual tension in the house. There were lots of brilliant ideas. There's lots of reading and talking. And there was a contest, a contest to see which of the friends could write the best ghost story. And considering this was a gathering of some of the best writers in the world, we're talking about a pretty serious competition. The great romantic poet Percy Shelley was there, as well as Lord Byron. But the ghost story that we most remember from that summer was by a teenage girl named Mary Godwin. And the story she wrote was called Frankenstein. Authors Anthony Brandt and David Eagleman argue that creativity thrives when brains are pushed together and ideas bounce back and forth. Creativity, they say, has made people entirely different from any other animal. And the question of why and how is an important one. Anthony Brandt is a composer who teaches at Rice University. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist who teaches at Stanford and hosts the PBS series The Brain. They are co-authors of the new book, The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you, Kara. So, uh, David, let's start off with that kind of magical, crazy summer that produced Frankenstein. It actually produced another story by someone also in that circle of friends called The Vampire that then influenced uh, Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula. What does it teach you about how humans, um, like, work with each other to heighten creativity? Well, there's a reigning misconception that creative artists function best when they are alone, when they turn their backs on the world. But one of the things that uh, Tony and I have been uh, thinking about for a long time and writing about is this issue that creativity is an inherently social act. And we are not islands unto ourselves, but instead, everything that you come up with is actually 
stuff that's remixed from your environment. In other words, we are vessels of our own space and time and going out there and eating the world and absorbing everything around you is is a critical part of the creative process. And I actually think, just as a side note, that uh, if we want to get artificial intelligence systems that are really interesting and creative, what we should do is make a whole bunch of AI systems that are all trying to impress one another uh, by coming up with something interesting and surprising. And then that's more like what our species is. What is the science um, on on how we developed creativity in the first place and whether it was interrelated with other people? Yeah, um, there are two things. The science generally is that we, you know, when you look around at a forest, it looks essentially the same as it did a million years ago. And the animal species that live there are really doing the same sort of thing generation to generation that they always have. When you look at a city, it's like a motherboard that's risen up out of the ground and, and humans are doing something really incredible and special. And the question is, what is it about our species that is so different than, than all the others on the planet, even mm-hmm. though our brains are essentially the right, same right. as theirs? And, and the answer has to do with the expansion of the human brain. There are several aspects to that, but the one I'll just mention briefly is that we get the prefrontal cortex, which is this area right behind our forehead, which allows us to unhook from the current space and time that we're in and Hmm. imagine other spaces and other times and to ask what if questions and run simulations. Right. And this has actually been the main important thing for creativity is being able to run these what ifs uh, constantly. And then when you get people together with one another and they're trying to, um, you know, constantly surprise and impress one another, um, you get these incredibly rich things happening. And that is the birth of civilizations. Hmm. Hmm. Tony, it's it's interesting what David says, because you think of little kids as thinking, what if I was Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz? What if I was Snow White? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, what if I was, you know, Buzz Lightyear? What if? Right. But actually, and I didn't think about this uh, before, but adults spend a ton of time thinking, hmm, what if I married that person? Or what if I took right. that job? Or what if I moved into the city? Or maybe like, what if I moved out to the suburbs? We spend so much time living in, essentially, I guess, a pretend world, right? Absolutely. That's one of the things we really try to demonstrate in the book is that this smooth line from the natural generation of possibilities and alternative futures and rethinking our past, what if I had bought that car, to the great blossoming of culture and human imagination. And even our language, one of the most important things about it is not just that it refers to the outside world, but it also refers to the impossible and the things that haven't happened yet. And it's ways for us to share that with each other all the time. So it's a fundamental part of being a human being and so built into our life that we almost barely notice that it's constantly humming along. And what do you think, like, running all those scenarios all the time in our heads does for us that we just don't even, that we're just not even aware of? Makes our thinking incredibly flexible. That's the thing that, you know, just is this great gift that we naturally carry around in our mind. And that ability to constantly be generating alternatives and different possibilities. Um, you know, I, I love this one quote that we found Richard Feynman saying that what he made him a great physicist was he kept figuring out different ways to arrive at the right answer. 
<laughs> and so if he ever ran into a roadblock, he always had another way of approaching the problem. Hmm. And that's just the natural way that human beings in general approach life. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking with Anthony Brandt. He's a professor of composition at Rice University. And also with me is David Eagleman, a neuroscientist and host of the PBS series The Brain. They are co-authors of the new book, The Runaway Species. So, uh, David, you have pointed this out. But one thing that is amazing to me is how quickly we go from like being impressed by creativity and inventiveness and something new to just eh, shrugging our shoulders and sort of old hat what does it say to you about the fact that our brain gets acclimated to new and awesome things so incredibly quickly? Yeah, this is the this is the interesting part is we adapt to whatever the baseline is. And for any of us with children, we know that they grew up in this world where, you know, for example, smartphones exist. And that's just part of the background radiation. Right, that's right, just right, the right. world they're yeah. in. And so... Um, yeah, the, the interesting part is how rapidly the avant-garde becomes the new normal and the, the cutting edge of something becomes less sharp. So, you know, the funny part about human brains is that we seek novelty all the time and we, uh, you know, we get used to things rapidly. And this is part of the beauty. It's because we don't like, th- how do I put this? We, we like the familiar, but we also want the novel. And so where we end up is this range in between, right in between the familiar Mm -hmm. and the novel. Mm -hmm. And by the way, one of the things we write about, which I love, is this idea about skew morphs. Have you ever heard of these, Kara? No, no. So skew morphs are are these things that are left over from previous generations, and we still use them all the time. So just as an example, you know, like the save button on your computer is a little floppy disk, which you haven't right, even right, seen right, one right. of those little discs. And, right. and, and, and right. on your on your <laughs> smartphone, the button that you press to make a phone call is is an old phone handset. That's right. You, that's right. That's true. It's not it's the funny smartphone when my, itself. Yeah. It's funny when my uh, daughter tries to, like, I, I've occasionally been in a hotel or something, they have an old phone. And she does not you know understand how to hold it because it's like she's never seen it. But you're right. You use the icon, but like she doesn't understand, you know, that there's like a receiver. It just doesn't get it. <laughs> exactly. So it turns out our lives, of course, are filled with these sorts of skew morphs. I mean, even electronic books like on the iPad, when you're reading ebooks, you choose them from a bookshelf and, right. and you and you turn the pages of them right. and so on and, and you throw things away in a trash can and put things in a shopping cart and so on. So what this represents, though, is we are in this funny, cool position between not wanting things to be super familiar because we get bored very easily as humans. And yet the, the flip side is they can't be too novel. They can't be so novel that there's no... Mm-hmm umbilical cord to our past we need we need things to go at a certain pace and that's why when people are creating anything new there's actually this sort of social cultural component to it where you can't do something so insanely new that no one even gets it it's got to be somewhere Mm -hmm. at at the right distance it's like right at the border of the possible where where it's uh, it satisfies people's need for novelty but it's not unfamiliar to them. Uh, Tony, do you think of, you know, music and sculpture and 
paintings as kind of, I wonder how you fit them into this like drive towards creativity. Are they in some ways like exercising our muscles for being creative? Because they're not putting a roof over our heads necessarily. Right. Do you know what I mean? You know, if we make a, you know, big sculpture, it's not particularly doing anything, but what is it? It must be doing something if you're, if we're making, if we're driven to make these things. So, you know, you think about somebody like Beethoven who went deaf in the middle of his life. And the miracle of Beethoven isn't all, only the music that he wrote, but he kept writing music when he was never going to be able to hear it himself. And what utility did it even have to him? He couldn't experience it directly. And I would say the reason is, and in every single art, is that basically inside of our heads we have this wonderful software that just takes in the world around us and is constantly trying it out in different ways. And that so energizes it and so enlivens us that we want to make it real in some way. We want to bring it out into the world. We want to share it with each other. And there's this virtuous loop, which we've been talking about, between the social nature of the ways we engage each other and our need for surprise and this wonderful constant bubbling that's going on in our thoughts. And, you know, Beethoven's thoughts kept bubbling his whole life, and he just had to keep putting it down on paper and sharing it with people. And I think in that sense, what any artist is doing is fundamentally connected to what any human being is doing, uh, no matter what field they're in. But how do you, um, Tony, think about, you know, if a school district is really trying to do well on tests, you know, that are Mm -hmm. about math and about, you know, and and about reading. And you're thinking, well, gee, there's all these coding jobs and they pay six figures right out of school. And that's amazing. We've got to get kids into these. And then somebody says, well, uh, how about playing the trombone? You say, well, that's nice. Gee, but really, we've got to get these kids into jobs. How do you have that conversation about the trombone? So, I mean, one of the things we argue is that the arts are the most overt way to study the creativity that underlies any discipline. And you can do that from when you're very little. There, You're not dealing with dangerous chemicals. There's not complicated equations you have to deal with. So the kids can all already getting a working knowledge of how creativity works and the principles of proliferating options and going different distances from community standards to test things out. All of that can be practiced when you're five and you're six and you're seven years old. Um, So I would say that's one reason. Another is that scientists, you know, you talk to people in those fields, they all, all of a sudden begin to realize the creative part of what they do. Programming takes creativity, you know, blending the different existing Mm -hmm. uh, algorithms together to create some new functionality. And if you're constantly conditioned that rigidity of thought and arriving at an answer is as fast as possible is the only way to make a living, you're really cutting off enormous possibilities. I wonder from both of you, finally, um, if there's a, a downside to creativity that you worry about. I'm mean, like an obvious one is we very creatively created nuclear weapons, mm. took a tremendous amount of, of, of brain power and people thinking in ways that, you know, people hadn't thought before. But I know there's some obvious downsides to that. So, uh, David, do you want to go first? And then, Tony, are there things that you worry about or is there something like a downside or a dark side to creativity? I think we're unable to worry about it a little bit, just in the sense that with all human progress, there's always two sides to the coin. There's the the, the good and the bad that comes out of it. Um, you know, we also get nuclear energy and ways of uh, fueling spaceships to go right. into the right. next uh, star system and so on. So um, th- this is something that we always face in, in, in human progress. But 
on average, I'd say we're doing pretty well. And when you look around at the at the animal kingdom around us, everyone's just doing the same thing they've always done. And there's something really, really special <laughs> about what humans are doing. Yeah, I would just say that, you know, the creativity in our brain is just one feature of what makes us a human being. And we're complicated beings and we have our flaws and the social norms create certain problems. Um, it shouldn't stop every child from having a chance to, to have art in a sense, you know. And yes, sometimes there are bad outcomes. But like David says, most of the time we're, we are pointing towards a brighter place. And, and you know, we just have to keep... Uh, nurturing and cultivating that and also try to, you know, be a more beautiful, constructive society. Anthony Brandt is a composer and professor at Rice University. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist. He teaches at Stanford and is host of the PBS series The Brain. They are co-authors of the new book, The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you. Thank you, Kara. As I just mentioned, Anthony Brandt is a composer, and this piece of music that you're hearing actually comes courtesy of his own creativity. It's from the third movement of Four Score, which is for clarinet, violin, cello, and piano. We will have a link to more of his work at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Sarah Frazier and Kaya Williams. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. And from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, danafarber.org slash beatcancer. And from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. PRI Public Radio International.